0: Welcome to Faith in Politics. As Christians, we believe our faith should have an effect on every area of our lives, and this includes our politics. But how does this look when it's lived out in public life? How does it affect how we think about particular issues? And how do we put our faith into action? Here at Faith in Politics, we want to explore these questions through interviews with public figures and through biblical monthly musings on particular issues.
1: Welcome to episode four of Faith in Politics. I want to start by saying I hope you've had a very happy Christmas and New Year. It's also the start of a new parliamentary session, so happy new parliamentary session, if that's something you're happy about. Cameron, what you've been very busy with Faith in Politics this month. What have you been up to with that?
0: I have a very happy New Year to you as well, Rosella. So I have been interviewing Sir Desmond Swain MP, who is a Conservative MP He's had a varied political career, he was the Parliamentary Private Secretary for David Cameron for a number of years, he's been International Development Minister, he's a member of the Conservative Christian Fellowship, and he's the Chair of Conservative Friends of International Development. So I went to interview him in his office in Parliament, I did hit a bit of an issue when I tried to find his office, I'd I'd looked on the map before I went to see where his office was, but even though me and Rosella have been working in Parliament for a little while now, I'm sure you'll attest as well, Rosella, it's quite hard to find your way around. It's a bit of a maze it in is. there. It definitely is. So apart from the set routes that I know for my job, I struggle a bit. So when I went to interview Sir Desmond, I, I went in the general direction where I thought his office was, and I actually saw the the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, coming out of a rather grand door, and I thought, oh, that's the general direction I have to go in, So as the door was closing behind Lindsay Hoyle, I slipped in to that door before it closed, thinking that I was allowed in there anyway. And I was greeted by a grand staircase. I went up the stairs. There was a big room with a big fireplace and a grand piano. I I stumbled into a library. I didn't know where I was, thinking I was in the right area to find Sir Desmond's office. Eventually, someone came along and said, "'Excuse me, how did you get in here?' And I was like, "Well, I've got it. I've got a parliamentary pass. I can get in here, can't I?" Like, uh, no, this is the Speaker's house. Um, so, yeah, I somehow managed to end up in Lindsey Hoyle's house. So I apologise to the Speaker of the House of Commons uh, sure <laughs> for trespassing on his property. A keen listener of faith in politics. I'm <laughs> sure he is. Um, but I eventually found Sir Desmond's office, albeit twenty minutes late. But he was very gracious uh, at accepting my lateness and we got to interviewing him and here is what he had to say. Sir Desmond, welcome to the podcast, thank you very much for agreeing to come on. First off, could you tell us a bit about what your faith means to you, how did you come to faith and how does that have an impact on your day-to-day life here? Uh, well, let me start
2: with how I came to faith. I mean, I, I don't remember a time when I didn't have faith. Uh, I was brought up in a church-going family uh, and we always said prayers at night uh, and um, I went to a school, a prep school, where the headmaster was an evangelical Christian and uh, involved us also going off on summer holidays to Crusader Camp um, down in near Swanwich at Studland Bay and so that was part of my background and i've never actually departed from it uh, i you know i've always had a routine of reading the bible every morning um with a commentary and uh, and praying that so so that's been part of the fabric of my life as long as i can remember uh, and i i think I, I i could probably identify a moment of what you might call a conversion experience, which was at one of the Crusader camps. It, it, it wasn't, it, it, in the sense that I, you know, I made a sort of a commitment, uh, a, a clear decision to um, be faithful to the Gospels, um, in rather than it just being a, a matter of habit. So so that would be my conversion experience. Uh, how important is it to my life? I suppose it is absolutely central, in the sense that it is something that you set aside time for every day, and it informs your opinions, your actions, your prejudices. It's It's just part of the fabric of life
0: have there been times or situations where being a person of faith in Westminster has been particularly challenging? It can often be a quite secular environment and on the flip side are there times when it's a particular joy to be a Christian in here? I know you recently paid tribute to the work of the Speaker's Chamblin, um, Rose Hudson-Wilkin.
2: I've never found it challenging. Uh, I get lots of uh, letters from constituents who who have a background in faith complaining about the discrimination of our secular society and its anti-Christian bias. And my my attitude is to say, for crying out loud, you know, just think what many Christians in the world have to face, uh, and actually we're very very fortunate here. What what discrimination there is is pretty minor. And hey, weren't we led to expect that? Any reading of the gospel uh, says that you will be vilified and, and persecuted for the sake of Christ. Well, actually, in those terms, we get it we get off pretty lightly and I have never found any difficulty at all in expressing my faith Um, I've come across certainly um, environments where there was a hostility to any kind of um, religion and particularly Christian approach to things in, in government a mentality that we should be a secular state but I've always found actually it's easily challenged and easily overcome
0: one of the ways that MPs can become directly involved with the Church, or at least the Church of England, is by sitting on the Ecclesiastical Committee, and this is a committee I believe you've sat on, but I suspect most of our listeners won't have heard of it, but I suppose it's a place where Westminster politics overtly overlaps with the governance of faith communities. Could you tell us a bit about what that committee does and your experience of being on it?
2: Well I may disappoint you in your expectations. Um, the the, the The Ecclesiastical Committee is a statutory committee, it's set up by law, and it's composed of both members of the House of Lords and uh, members of the House of Commons. And its history dates back, I think, to uh, the great row that took place in Parliament in, I think, 1926, when the Church of England wanted to revise the Book of Common Prayer. And change one or two words in the uh, Lord's Prayer. And so, so no longer um, being "Our Father, which art in heaven," they wanted to change it to "Who," uh, and um, "in earth" rather than or "on earth" rather than "in earth." And and I think the other change was um, "Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive." those they wanted to change it to from rather than them. Now, of course, those changes, those changes to the prayer book um, were more extensive than that, but there was an enormous row in Parliament. How dare the Church of England, the established Church, seek to change the liturgy um, without consulting Parliament. Um, And one of the ways that we have evolved this relationship between the Church of England changing its laws But because it's an established church it's the law of the land was to set up the ecclesiastical committee so first of all um, before they take things through their synod changes to substantive changes to Church of England canon law and practice um, have to go through the ecclesiastical committee for approval it can be very dry
0: stuff (laughs)
2: indeed (laughs) of course there are aficionados for this, particularly amongst the peers um, on the committee who really do get excited about this um, canon law and arcane um, procedures by which cathedrals are governed and and all the rest. I frankly, personally don't have much of an appetite for
0: it. (laughs) It may be a bit dry, but here (laughs) in the history of it, it is quite interesting. Another thing you've been involved with is being chairman of the Conservative Friends of International Development, as well as a Minister for International Development. Why is this a particular passion of yours, and has your faith played any role in that?
2: Invariably, uh, faith plays a role in that. Um, uh, And I'll come back to that in a moment. How did I get involved? I was, I suppose, one of those knee-jerk right-wing conservatives who, whenever people wrote to you complaining about, you know, the waste of foreign aid, I would typically um, agree and say, yes, it's awful, isn't it? Um, uh, And if there were any ever savings to be had in public expenditure, the first on the list might be International Development Aid. But then I actually got involved with it. One of the things that David Cameron uh, did was to try and create a cadre within the Conservative Party of people who are passionate About international development aid as one of his ways of changing the very nature of the Conservative Party and he gave that task to um, Andrew Mitchell and they set up a project over basically a decade of during the summer us going and working on international development projects in Rwanda Uh, and more recently we've we've been to Tanzania and I started going on these trips and teaching English pr- primarily to uh, primary school teachers who were required to teach their lessons in English and probably had textbook knowledge of English grammar, more, knew more grammar than I did, but had never heard a native English speaker. So it was intensive conversation classes in, in, in rather large classes in remote areas. Um, and it developed a passion for international development aid uh, that I've never had before and also in terms of faith playing a role yes of course I evangelized (laughs) at every opportunity and of course when you're up in front of a class um, uh, of teachers who who have a background in faith themselves it's it's Easy to give in to the temptation. Indeed, one ought to give in to the temptation of teaching one or two hymns and, and prayers and uh, doing some dictation. If you're doing dictation, why not dictate from the Bible?
0: It's recently been the media that there would be a potential merger between the Department of International Development and the Foreign Office. It seems that that's been backtracked a bit on now. But as someone who has been involved in that department, How did you feel about that potential merger? I was very
2: much against it and always very suspicious of Foreign Office interference. I accept entirely the fact that the International Development Aid budget is not charity. It's not something that we give away in expectation of no return. That's something you do by putting your hand in your own pocket. The money that is distributed by the International Development Aid um, is... Extracted from your pocket with all the coercive power of the law. It is an investment by the British taxpayer on which we expect a return. And that return is a safer, more stable, more prosperous world. And we spend our money in the poorest parts of the world to achieve that end, in my view. Uh, and therefore, it has a clear political purpose. But I don't want that to be subjected to short term. Uh, political requirements of diplomacy which are entirely legitimate but they must be funded in a rather different way if you look at all, most of the scandals that have emerged uh, that, uh, that, that appear in the newspapers about a particular waste of international development aid nine times out of ten trace the story to its roots and you will find that that was aid distributed by the foreign office the international development Par- uh, department has an expertise uh, at ensuring value for money and really being rigorous in determining where money ought properly to be spent that is not an expertise or a focus That the Foreign Office has, and I think one of the great reforms of Tony Blair's government was to move international development aid out of the Foreign Office and to create a separate department. So I'm confident that the oversight of the National Security Committee um, is, is important to ensure that British taxpayers' money is spent consistently with our international objectives. But I think it's much better having that administered by a department that is specifically governed by the Acts of Parliament, the International Development Act, to ensure that money is spent in the poorest countries of the world, um, rather than to have it potentially rather more closely tied to diplomatic um, priorities.
0: One final question for you, Sir Desmond. We ask this question to all our guests, some of whom are within Parliament, some of whom are without, and that is, if you could ask one question to the Prime Minister at PMQs, what would it be? Being someone who is in the same party as the Prime Minister, this might be slightly different from many of our guests, but would you have a potential question for Boris Johnson?
2: Well, I have I have asked Prime Minister's questions in the past, um, uh, and normally they're drawn... Uh, on much more um, short-term political priorities and that's that's one of the 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 things that one has that any person of faith in any walk of life has you know your day is taken up with all sorts of issues and priorities and at the end of the day you wonder you know Crikey, what have I done to build God's kingdom today? Uh, And that is immensely true here in politics, where you are in this hugely privileged position. And nevertheless, in terms of God's priorities, where did your day go? Um, So I do remember Tony Blair being asked by Labour MP, I think it was Desmond Turner, um, what his philosophy was at Prime Minister's Questions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and um, uh, thinking, crikey, what an important question! But nevertheless, how out of place a prime minister's <laughs> questions. Um, and I think it's the same. There was another time when when um, uh, Alistair Campbell spoke on behalf of the prime minister when asked about faith, he said, "We don't do God." And I think you know an important question for me is do you do
0: God but I assure you I'm not going to ask it. (laughs) (laughs) So Desmond Swain thank you very much for joining us on the podcast.
2: Thank you.
1: So I really really enjoyed listening to that interview I wasn't there at the time so listening back to that I found it really engaging and actually there's some of the things that um, Desmond had to say about the international development, I found super interesting, having studied that for four years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I got lost on the way to the interview. You got you got so lost that you didn't even turn I up. Turn up? That's <laughs> <fair>. <laughs> no, you were otherwise engaged. Uh, I actually found the stuff on uh, the ecclesiastical committee really interesting. He kind of shot down that question, saying it was really dull. But I was like, yes, church nerd <laughs> here. I'm I'm loving it. And he kind of shot down the question on the, uh, how it was being challenging being in parliament. I made an assumption in the question that he challenged, and I was quite willing to be corrected on that one. So, we come now to our monthly musing. This is our segment where we think theologically about a particular topic that's come up in the interview. One of the things we found interesting in Sir Desmond's interview was his comment on the international development budget and how he said it's not charity, that it's an investment on behalf of the taxpayer. That expects a return. He was against that potential merger between the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development, but he didn't seem to be against the international development budget being spent on something that is vaguely in line with Britain's diplomatic goals. What do you make of that, Rosar?
1: Yeah, it was particularly interesting in terms of um, looking at the distinction between charities and church and the state as to what their motive for engaging in international development is. It's something that didn't actually come up that much in my studies. It was kind of, assume a given that we want to make the world a better place, but actually what does that look like and why and how? And there's a lot of big philosophical questions around that. Talking about this idea of giving with an expectation of a return naturally drew me to the idea of grace, which often would be described as giving with the expectation expectation of no return Um, so a very different idea and it raised up a lot of different questions around what that really means for me.
0: Yeah and that would certainly be my instinct when I think about grace is it's a gift that doesn't expect return but one of the things that I was thinking about there's a theologian called John Barclay um, who's a professor at Durham University who released a seminal work last year called Paul and the Gift and he kind of challenges this idea that the that the best gift possible is one that has no reciprocity that a pure gift is one where you give without expecting return and how when we talk about grace as a gift if we think that the kind of the definition of grace is giving without expecting return that's probably not how they would have seen it in first century times that the best gifts were ones which had reciprocity and even though God gives generously and in terms of salvation, that grace doesn't need a return in terms of action, but that it does expect one. Um, and I found that his thoughts quite challenging and how that might link into what Sir Desmond was saying about international aid, and that m- my instinct is that we should give to the poorest in society, regardless of what we get back from it, that it's just maybe, yeah, my idea of international development budget for the government is effectively charity, but maybe that alternative idea of what grace as gift is might challenge that slightly.
1: So I was thinking about that in terms of the development budget and actually we do need to think about the fact that we do expect a return on our giving. It might not, well hopefully isn't in terms of an economic return to our pocket but actually that we expect that when we give something good comes of it. Um, So I think we should be giving expectantly um, rather than just Putting money into projects so that we look good.
0: Yeah, and the return that Sir Desmond was talking about was effectively a more peaceful, prosperous world. And those returns can easily be argued for from a Christian perspective. And so I suppose it's just a more long term pragmatic view. I think that speaks into some fundamental differences between more conservative and more progressive Christian politics a more left-leaning Christian would probably argue that the biblical call to help the poor and the marginalised, that's, that's an urgent, short-term, direct obligation. And if the best way of meeting that urgent need is a bigger role for the state, higher taxes on the rich, then so be it. Whereas a more right-wing Christian wouldn't deny the imperative to social justice, but would probably suggest that the way it's achieved is through a more longer-term, indirect method That the way you help poorer people is by incentivising enterprise, enabling job creation, and that a prospering economy will eventually benefit everyone. And you can argue against both of those ideologies, but I think those underlying assumptions often aren't tackled when Christians disagree about politics. It's the surface level stuff that we often end up debating on.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point about that. That distinction between the short-term needs and the longer-term objectives and I think it's clear that actually that's something that both of those need to be tackled we can't just tackle the short-term needs and not worry about the future generations worry about actually changing the structural conditions um, and I think that was one of the things that didn't quite sit well with me the idea of we expect a return on our aid is that actually us giving aid is in some sense repaying our debt to these countries that in oftentimes A lot of the structural issues they're facing stem from our colonial legacy. Our economy grew off taking from many of these countries through mining and resource extraction and left a whole wake of problems as we uh, moved out. So actually, if we are expecting a return on our giving, maybe actually what we're doing is making a return to these countries for what what they've given us.
0: Yeah, it's a really important point. We love a bit of colonialism on this podcast. Or rather, we hate a bit of colonialism. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, One of the other issues that I think stems from what Sir Desmond said was broader questions about the purpose of taxation in a Christian worldview. So I was reflecting on the idea of tithing and how this has often come to mean in modern churches giving 10% of your income to your local church. But how in the Mosaic law in... Leviticus 27 and other places, it was much more akin to a tax because you were giving that money to Israel, not just to say the upkeep of the temple. It was used for the common good of the Israelite community. And the tithe was on a three year cycle. And on the third year of the cycle, the tithe was specifically used for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And so I'd say there's arguably a biblical precedent there for using tax specifically for relief without an alternative agenda, without an alternative reciprocity expected.
1: So this raises up a whole load of questions for us in terms of what it means to have development aid, what it means to have taxes, what it means to try and address short-term and long-term needs. And as I said at the start, we definitely come away with more questions than answers, but it's important questions that need to be asked. And if that's ignored, we end up with projects that aren't necessarily meeting the needs of those, that should be benefiting from them.
0: So those were our incomplete and rambling thoughts, but we want to know what you think, the Faith in Politics listeners. If you don't already follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at FIP underscore podcast and on Instagram at Podcast. We'll put out some questions on there. We'd love you to engage in the conversation. What do you think the international development budget is for? Should it expect a return? Is it investments or is it charity? We want to know your thoughts. So please engage with us on social media.
1: So if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that we like to end with an action that we can take to help us engage better with political life. And this month, we want to chat to you about Meet Your MP. This is a campaign that is an opportunity to help you Invite your MP into your church and into your community. As Sir Desmond said, it was in experiencing life in Rwanda that his views were changed and shaped. No doubt he'd had many letters telling him about the importance of development, but in relationship and experience, we can help our MPs best to serve their community. If you're interested in finding out more about how to do this and stories from people who've done it before and their positive experiences of that, head to the JPIT website, there's blogs, there's advice on how to practically do this, or check out the hashtag meetyourmp. Thank you for listening to Faith in Politics, a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, the Church of Scotland, and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. We hope you'll join us again
0: next time. To round us off, we have a prayer from Roxanne, who works for All We Can, which is a Christian international relief and development charity.
2: Borderless God, thank you that your love extends to all people and nations, and for your particular care for the poor and marginalised, wherever they may be. Spare us from insular and nation centric thinking. Generous God, fix in us generous hearts, both as individuals and as a nation to join in with your mission in other parts of the world through international development and relief. Grace-filled God, teach us to give in the way that you have given to us. Amen.